With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C., on Tuesday, May the 14th, my colleague Mark Joseph Stern and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. I'm Hannah Rosen, and I'm host of the Double X Gab Fest. Every episode, I'm joined by Noreen Malone and June Thomas, people I would talk to all day if I could. We talk about how the world is changing for women and men at work, online, at home, and on the street. It's not a lecture. It's the conversation you want to have with your friends. Join us. So subscribe now where you get your podcasts at iTunes.com slash Panoply. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, this is Josh Levine, and this is Slate Sports Podcast Hang Up and Listen for the week of November 16th, 2015. On today's show, we're doing something a little different. This week is the Slate Superfest, our live show in New York City, featuring the combined powers of Hang Up and Listen, the Political Gab Fest, and the Culture Gab Fest. That show will be posted in its entirety in the Slate Daily Podcast feed, if you're a subscriber there. Also in the Slate Plus Podcast feed and the Culture Gab Fest feed. It'll be up very soon. We'll also post our unadulterated standalone segment in the Hang Up and Listen feed for your enjoyment. So look out for that. Since we're recording that show this week, we're going to do a little kind of variation on our show uh, this week. If you're not a Slate Plus member, you've heard me mention our Slate Plus bonus segments at the start of each episode. Perhaps you've been seething with jealousy at what you're missing out on. Well, today we are going to give you a peek behind the Slate Plus curtain to show you everything that you've been missing, or at least a few things. Some, some of everything. Oh, hi, Stefan. Hi, Josh. You're, you're here. I'm here. All right. Uh, we're going to bring you four of our uh, Slate Plus bonus segments. Uh, first up, uh, my colleague, Mr. Fatsis. Hello, Stefan. Hi, Josh. Uh, and I talk about how to be a sports columnist in 2015 with The Washington Post's Dan Steinberg. Then uh, Mike Pesca, Stefan, and I weigh the perils and the payoffs of taking kids to sporting events with Allison Benedict, who is the host of the Slate podcast, Mom and Dad Are Fighting. Then Stefan and Mike chat with Emma Spann, senior editor at Sports Illustrated, about the rise of baseball commentator Jessica Mendoza and the sexism faced by women in sports media. 
and finally we explain why we have not mentioned your favorite sports team on the show and maybe why we might in the future if you like what you hear and if you want to support our show please sign up for slate plus a membership costs just five dollars a month or fifty dollars a year you can try before you buy just go to slate.com slash hang up plus we'll be back next week with a full episode and now here is dan steinberg discussing sports journalism in the age of the internet we have been graced with the presence today of a sports blogger slash columnist person. Dan. I think he likes to go by sports columnist slash blogger person. Really? He's going to update his bio. Okay. Uh, when did you start writing the, the column for the newspaper, Dan? Uh, it was last December, I believe. And so that was the, the job to aspire to get for a certain generation, the fastest generation. I think they're they're referred to in journalism schools. <laughs> like to be a columnist at a newspaper uh, of the Washington Post's great uh, renown and prestige. So how do you look the at legacy? Writing? The legacy. Mention the legacy of the Washington Post columnists. It's, it's a Hall of Fame. Yeah, it's amazing. Of writers. Why don't you writers. why don't you list them? Shirley Povich. You want to take turns? Dave, Tom, Dave Kindred? Dave Kindred. Tony Kornheiser. Michael Wilbon. Thomas Boswell. Uh, Richard Justice, I believe, was a columnist. I think he might have been. Fantasy, fantasy sports Day. gambling addict uh, Dan Steinberg. So uh, It is an incredible legacy. So you've been blogging for a long time. How do you look at the newspaper column as different from stuff that you would write just uh, for the website? Or do you not? No, I do. I absolutely do. And I think this is something that we haven't figured out. And I never know if real people are actually interested in this or not. But I don't think we know how to balance it because I think the style of something that works well on the web is not always the same style as something that works well in print, even if they're produced by the same person about the same topic. And I, I don't think we have a solution yet. The, the thing that I've written about the Redskins that has gotten the most traffic by far this season, I believe, is a winners and losers thing that I did when they benched RG3. I said winners and losers from RG3's benching. And it's the kind of thing... And that was on the web? It was on the web. I mean, it was meant for the web. They wound up using it in the paper, but they didn't use it very prominently in the paper because it looks a little bit... Webby. Juvenile, I think, in the paper. It doesn't look mature enough somehow, but it works really well on the web and people want to read something like that. And I think the actual sentences that I was writing were not immature or juvenile. They were just presented in a kind of a format that feels more webby than Washington Posty, I think. And so I don't, I don't think we have an answer. The other issue, again, that I don't know if anyone's interested in, is that our web traffic continues to be much higher Monday through Friday daytime hours than it does weekends and at nights. And obviously that's changing, especially as mobile becomes a bigger and bigger part of the business. But for right now, it's still you know late morning and early afternoon on a Tuesday is when I want to be online. But there's not a lot of sporting events happening then. And so you kind of have to balance how to choose topics that can work well in that time frame unless you want to be working Monday through Friday I, at all hours. I wonder if this isn't a problem that's somehow really endemic to newspapers more than web-only businesses in as much as the physical product conveys a sort of permanence and gravitas. Like when your column is on the front of the sports section, it does feel different than the way the post has positioned you in the past when you were exclusively blogging on page two and it felt a little bit not quite as serious. It wasn't meant as, you know, 
expert guy columnist's opinion about important subject, it felt like, you know, Dan writes about what the, the nationals do with their chewing gum when they're done with it. There's and no question. There's well, no kind, question. Of, kind of like explicitly an alternative to what was on the front page or what um, the other columnists were doing, right? Yeah, I, it certainly became that. I don't know if that was the goal, but it certainly became something that felt different than print and was intended to feel different than print and more conversational, more, you know, quirky, probably less hot takey, at least was always my goal. Mm -hmm. But that should still be your goal. Well, maybe, but like there's times like when Bryce Harper calls out Nationals fans for leaving the Mets game early on Labor Day, it feels like the kind of thing that a Washington Post columnist is going to write about in kind of a more serious way than I ever would have before. And I don't know how to deal with that, really. When you talk about the permanence of the paper, this is something I think about all the time. The The paper gets delivered to every congressional office and to the White House. And there's, you know, senators and presidents who are, like, probably reading the sports section. And do I want my work that I'm presenting to them to be winners and losers from the RG3 benching? <laughs> or, you know, that's... That's probably a good example. There's a, another example where I'm, you know, writing a column. Is it a column? I don't know about the Nationals dumping chocolate sauce on each other after wins. That's something that plays great on the web, and it did do great on the web. But I sometimes feel a little bit embarrassed that that is my column that I'm offering to the newspaper. But your audience, no matter where you're writing, is Washington sports fans, and you can't think about like writing a column that Obama's going to want to like read to Michelle in bed. <laughs> 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 well, I don't think I don't think the audience that reads the printed Washington Post product is even primarily Washington sports fans. I think there's so many people here who almost delight in seeing Washington teams do poorly, who have brought their it's allegiances true. It's true. <laughs> from elsewhere, like you, for example, and who like maybe enjoy the spectacle of Washington sports, but would just as soon read a penetrating column on Roger Goodell, which is not a space that I've typically operated in. Huh. This is a conundrum, Dan. Thank you. We left Sally Jenkins' name out of that list of renowned. Sally Jenkins, Washington too. And plenty of others. Leonard columnists. Shapiro, Bill Gilday, even uh, Angus Phillips and um, Andy Byer. Oh, Andy Byer. Yeah. Racing. yeah. yeah. It's, yeah. It's, a, it's a big legacy. I mean, honestly, to me, the best answer is that for every big story, you come at it twice. You come at it once in a way that feels appropriate for the web, and you come at it once in a way that feels good for the newspaper. But again, this is particular to news organizations that still have two media that they have to serve. Absolutely. I mean, it's not as if there isn't serious writing about these kinds of topics that are web exclusive. Slate, for instance. That's true. So That's so true. it is a particular problem for someone that's dropping something on Obama's doorstep every morning. That's true. But I would say for us, the more interesting problem than what I'm talking about is, is how beat writers should handle their job. Because we still are making beat writers follow this print newspaper schedule, which is obviously not how people who are ready for websites are operating. And so during this preseason football game, when Griffin gets hurt against the Lions, we have our poor beat writer trying to react in real time for a story that's going to be in the next morning's paper. And like virtually everyone else, they blamed the offensive line because that was the only thing that you could do looking at it that quickly and, and live. And you know, within a few hours, by the time you start talking to coaches and start hearing what they're saying, you're understanding that this is going to be something that reflects badly on the quarterback more than the offensive line. But we didn't know that when we were following these newspaper deadlines. And so we wind up making our beat writers do gymnastics to get a paper in time 
to Winchester, Virginia for the 37 people who want to read it there before they go to work instead of doing the best job they possibly can. I think it's, I think it's something we need to figure out. Uh, all right, man. Well, good luck. I think, uh, yeah, good luck with that. I think, uh, I just don't want you to lose your, uh, your verve. Your wit, your whimsy, because whimsy. Uh, you know, it's it, to no, being it, totally. I don't know if we're still talking for the podcast or if we're just talking. No, we are still no, talking, talking for, for the podcast. podcast because I think that I mean, in all sincerity, your being a columnist, it's a validation of what you've done on the web for the last decade, and so you're changing what you do because you're being validated seems counterproductive. I completely agree with you, and I think that. When I sit down and know something's going to be in the newspaper, I, I start typing in the kind of artificial style that is what I used to want to avoid. It's, it's hard not to – there's like a kind of artifice when you are thinking of writing a newspaper story that I didn't feel before. And it's, right. And let us, for those who don't know you that well, be very clear here that you really did create – He invented the, the internet. The internet. <laughs> you really did create the idea of a – of someone approaching sports in a more holistic, fun, whimsical way for an internet audience. I thought yeah, that was a sense. When you were blogging from the Olympics in those first couple cycles when you were trying to figure out what the bog was going to be, you were doing stuff that nobody else was doing. Oh, that's ridiculous. There were... Dozens. Well, doing in, in a, you know, but doing for, for a mainstream, mainstream outlet. outlet. For a mainstream this, is outlet. this is definitely getting cut. This is definitely getting cut. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Oh, I'm kidding. Well, what I was going to say is, which is actually interesting. We're talking today on the 10-year anniversary of the creation of Deadspin, which was, you know, a few months before. How did we not do a segment on that? I don't know. Oh, sorry, Will Leach. <laughs> Next week. But, with the, you know, this was a few, a few months before I started blogging for the first time. And there are, you know, dozens of named sports writers now who got their start right at that exact same moment when this, this was kind of changing, when we had an outlet to write in a more... I really do remember, because I was still at the Wall Street Journal at the time, and I do remember reading your stuff and then meeting you at the Olympics and thinking, this is so different. This is such a different way to give fans something that they're going to want instead of the sort of high-handed or whatever mountaintop approach that most sports writing adopts. And it worked so well. It was like, you know, wow, why didn't we think of this before? But you really did create a different form for a different medium. So this, some, this somehow transformed into the in introduction to Dan's Hall of Fame uh, <laughs> acceptance. But no, I mean, I think there is a for sure a story. And again, I hope that we're not talking for the podcast, but I think there's a story <laughs> to be written about this entire generation of people who mostly were fortunate to be the right age at the right time. And you can say that's not true, but... And you know what? Those people will love reading that story. <laughs> well, maybe, maybe, but it, it's a... It was a big change. And now the thing is that now we're all in our late 30s or early 40s and we're all having kids and we're all getting to be of the age the people were that we were criticizing originally. And I don't know what's going to happen exactly with all of us. Wow. You're you're going to figure it out. You're a smart guy. Like, don't, like, lose all of your money on daily fantasy sports. <laughs> <laughs> because whatever the post pays you, it's not going to be enough to recruit those losses. Yeah, I do think the daily fantasy NASCAR is great because I, like, I don't think you can algorithm your way out of a car crash. I think it's a lot more random. And so... <laughs> You've you've put a lot of thought into that. All right, that's a column. That is a column. Uh, all right, man. Well, uh, at least a blog post. <laughs> uh, this is this is all uh, on the record. Thank you, Slate Plus uh, members, for listening. Thank you, Dan Steinberg, for being with us. Being and you, it was my pleasure. I can't wait to come back next. September. Being a pioneer. All right. Well, uh, we'll talk to you again next week. Okay.
Not you. The members. No. Oh, oh, next. Ne- well, yeah, sorry. We're not going to talk to you next week. All, all you people. You're not coming back for a year. You've exhausted your quota. <laughs> It's Allison Benedict, Slate editor and co-host of the parenting podcast Mom and Dad Are Fighting, in which she plays the roles of both mom and fighting. Hello, Allison. Hello. Thanks for having me. Uh, you're very welcome. You have uh, several children, more than two, right? Many, yes. Three. We, we can't just count one more them all. than two. Is that a brood? Does that <laughs> constitute a brood? I just moved from the city to the suburbs and in the city it was like oh you have three kids and you and your husband both work it was oh yeah no it's no big deal whatever we've got that and now that i live in the suburbs everyone has four or five kids everyone 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 has five children (laughs) four four seems to be the norm of the people i meet wow crazy all right well we have you for a few minutes before you go off and and try to correct your your error not having <laughs> no, that enough is children. Absolutely um, impossible. John McGraw's got some advice <laughs> for you. All right, you've you've taken your your brood to some baseball games this summer, and thought we would talk about the challenge, what you can do right, what you can do wrong, in taking your kids to a sporting event. So, how did that go? What did you do right, and what did you do wrong at the minor league baseball stadium? Well, I think what we did right to begin with is going to a minor league game instead of to a major league game. Uh, Mike, you can correct me because you take your kids to, right? You guys actually go to Mets games? Easier, well, sir. The Mets were Mets a minor choice. league team, but now they're a major league <laughs> team. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think, like, pressure's off. You go to a minor league game. It's not expensive. So if your kids want to bail, you don't feel horrible about it. They can be wild. They're not expected to sit in their seats. Uh, there's usually like a moon bounce or a yeah, play it's like area. all set up for kids. There's a play area. Right. They're like I don't think they're. I mean, there's there are always like a few gruff guys that are real. They go to every game and they're like there to really watch the Bowie <laughs> yeah. Bay Sox. Or they're the, totally not losers, those guys. <laughs> but <laughs> you children are interrupting my enjoyment of minor league baseball. Yeah, good point. <laughs> right, but generally the kids can just run around. So I don't know that that's the that is the success. There's always like a 19 year old in a mascots uniform too. Yeah, and they have, like, whatever. They have, like, Star Wars nights, and it's all, like, it's all set up for kids. Yeah, yeah. But I haven't done a major league game because I'm scared to. Oh, don't be scared. So, Mike, maybe you can give tips on how to take kids to a real baseball game. Okay, well, first of all, you got to go even lower. The great thing about kids is they're very open to suggestion, and also they, and this is a parenting phrase, they don't know shit. So they don't know, for instance, that when I take them to see the Hunter College Hawks play Division Eight college basketball, that it's not just a college basketball game. They kind of sense they're not in the Barclays Center or Madison Square Garden. But, you know, there's only... 87 people in the stands. They bring signs. Let's go Hawks. They were playing like the Manhattan College Beavers. They loved it. So we go to all these Division Three basketball games in Manhattan. It's great. They've been to more college football games than I have when I was up until I was like 22 because we go to Columbia games because why not? There are 2,000 people in the stands. The last Columbia game I went to, Attorney General of the United States, Eric Holder, was there. I thought maybe the kids would be convinced that the Attorney General always showed up. But yes, so you could take your kids to anything. You get them excited. I mean, these are people really trying. It's much more sophisticated than anything they've known. And I have a six and an eight-year-old. 
up till this point, there has never been any, but come on, this isn't close to the highest level of baseball. Now, as far as taking them to a major league game, especially a baseball game that's not extremely crowded, although we were in Wrigley Field a few weeks ago and it was a sellout, I don't think it's tough at all, you know? I mean, baseball games especially are geared for kids and people will be nice to children and there are a number of distractions because the more boring a sport is, the less they expect you to actually watch the sport. So in that way, baseball is actually better for kids of football. It also seems like baseball is more set up for your child to maybe star in a viral video caught on camera. <laughs> yes. Kiss cam. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So when I was a kid, I can relate to this conversation more as the former child than the current parent, but I went to a baseball game. They had exhibition games in the Superdome and it was around the time of my birthday, spring training, March, and I was maybe like seven or eight and I was just an obsessive baseball fan by that time, as some kids of that age are. And I got really upset that my friends didn't want to sit there and watch every inning of the game. They just wanted to run up and down the ramps of the Superdome. So my question is, is that is it an issue if you have kids who are like into the game versus ones that aren't? Like, how do you navigate those differences? Or is that why you have to have multiple parents? Yeah, I was just going to say, just don't go by yourselves. I mean, I have a two, a four, and a six-year-old. So the six-year-old can sit and is interested in the game. And the other two like are basically just like fit, incapable of sitting. And they also do the running up and down the stands. I mean, don't, you just need more than – you need adult hands. Mm-hmm. There's no I've only secret. got one child. Mm-hmm. And she's a she. So she wasn't really interested. We went to a couple. She's we've been a to she. a few. We've <laughs> went to a few Nationals games. We're going to, I think uh, – USA, Peru. She's 13 now, though. She'll she's go there as a, long as she wants to go. She makes decisions. Sports. She is not. We went into, to the Women's World Cup. And she goes, no, she's totally into sports. Um, we just went to the Women's World Cup. And I took her to the Women's World Cup when she was nine. So that is more in the what's appropriate and what isn't. And I was reluctant because I wasn't sure how much she'd be into the games. So we were going to Germany. And yeah, it's a long way to go. And should you take your nine-year-old to Germany to watch soccer? <laughs> to watch soccer, <laughs> I wasn't sure whether we should. Uh, we had been to women's soccer games in D.C. and there's a nice berm behind one of the goals, and you can just sit and put a blanket down and walk around. And again, safe environment, like a minor league park. They can go get ice cream on their own. You know, you don't have to really worry too much, um, and you don't have to worry about getting hit in the head with a foul ball, which is nice. Um, but I, you know, spent all this money, go to, go to Germany. Is this going to work out? I only got tickets to three games. You know, I was being conservative. What if she doesn't like it? We get to the first game. She was completely obsessed. Didn't want to move. Was weeping when the U.S. lost to Sweden one to nothing. Um, so I discovered at that point that, oh shit, open season. I can go to as many games now as we want because (laughs) she loves this stuff. And that is, that is sustained. Um, so I think part of it at a certain point after your demographic, after your age, uh, the age where your, what your kids are now, Allison, when you get to nine or 10, they've got to want to go. Um, you can't, it's no longer about you wanting to go do a family activity and, oh, minor league baseball would be fun or a soccer game would be fun or, oh, the Mets would be fun. Though up until this season, I can't understand why you would think that, Mike. Um, so the, you're going to reach that point where, you know, if the older one's into it, great. But if your oldest child isn't and the younger ones might be a little bit more, you're going to have to make decisions about whether you can go on family, which is where it helps to have two parents. 
Now, another great thing about taking kids to the park, by the way, WNBA is great. Oh, my God, that is just set up for kids. And there, I don't think there's ever been a sellout. But another great thing about taking kids to the park is, especially in New York, loudmouth, horribly offensive fans. Mm-hmm. It's a sanctioned place. I mean, my six-year-old and eight-year-old cannot believe what these guys in Yankee Stadium were yelling. <laughs> and I told them everyone thinks that these guys are jerks. But still, the entertainment value of hearing it and then turning to me and saying they said a bad word to me saying, oh yeah, they said a bad word. But those guys still getting on Carlos Gomez. This was after he caused a fight by not losing or something, according to Joe Girardi. That is great. That is an added benefit. And you won't get that kind of loudishness mm-hmm. at an, a WNBA game, I have to say. Are you guys the same kind of fans when your kids are around? Like, will you, I don't know how you are anyway, but do you scream and swear? I don't swear. I usually try to start the wave either in either case. But when I start it with, for my kids, they really appreciate it. Yeah. Really? Uh, yeah. They think uh, it's cool that I try to start the wave. That will change. All right. That must one, change. One, la- one, one last question from me. A stadium is a kind of place where commerce is rampant. <laughs> what do you do about the kids, I'm assuming, like just constantly wanting things to be purchased for them, whether yeah. edible or otherwise? That's tough. We had a massive breakdown in the gift shop at the Cyclones <laughs> game this summer. I'm not going to lie. Uh, you know, over, be- over what item? Uh, <laughs> a tank top. Harry really is into like me- my oldest is really into like mesh shorts and tank tops, and we've drawn the line at tank tops. He can have mesh <laughs> shorts, but no tank tops. And he really why is down. that? That seems like a rational. I don't know. It's decision. just like it's too much. Is, I know we're not that sporty. Lines are good, but why is tank tops? <laughs> it's just been drawn. There's not necessarily You're against a lot the children to it. showing their deltoids. <laughs> uh, but yeah, we like we basically say you know you can have as much crap as you want to eat, and we're willing to. Take handle the blowback from that, but the gift shop is another story because the stuff is like it's, it's incredibly expensive. So read the rules beforehand. I always pack a lunch at Yankee Stadium. You pack a lunch, really, yeah, and your yeah. kids let you do that? Oh, they're so into it. Milo, my oldest, parcels out a piece of fruit for every out. It's like, was that a double play? And he gets to eat two pieces of fruit. He was really good <laughs> this is... that game. He was good that game. But so at Yankee Stadium, they say if you bring fruit, it has to be sliced, which is good for the out. It has to be sliced. Because you don't want to throw no the fruit choking? on the field. Nothing oh. back in. Nothing back in. Nothing back in. worried about the choking hazard. Choking. Nothing. <laughs> nothing <laughs> you. Sorry, sorry. I was confused. They literally say nothing that could be used as a projectile, but all bottled water must be sealed, but that could be used as a projectile. So on the way into Yankee Stadium, I really thought, because I just ran into this problem where they didn't accept my StubHub tickets, and they said, oh, you got to go to the office to get them printed, and you go to the office like, yeah, we don't print them here. They give you a little sheet that tells you where you could get them printed, which is 0.7 miles from the stadium. And I asked him a question like, well, when I go there, what happens? Sir, we really don't know. They're not affiliated with the Yankees. I'm like, I know, but your only job is to give out this flyer and tell people that they're who are disappointed to go to this thing. Someone must have told you what happens. Sir, we really don't know. They're not affiliated with the Yankees. I'm like, all right, you don't have to be jerks about it. Sir, we really... Anyway, so I get to the stadium and I'm really, because of that, really worried that I don't have a a sealed bottle of water. I have a sealed bottle of seltzer. So I was thinking of all the things that I need to argue. It is a type of water. It's not its own category. Literally, I literally bought the plain and not flavored seltzer because I thought that my argument would go further if it was just plain seltzer. If it was raspberry. Yes. And I get there. And the kids were thirsty beforehand because of the whole StubHub fiasco. And so they had drunk half the bottle of water. And I go in, and I'm like, oh, yeah, we're going to have to toss that. He's like, no, 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 
know, keep it open. There's there's water fountains inside the stadium. You could fill it up. So some people at Yankee Stadium are jerks. And Kevin, the guy who let us in, was great. Kevin. And I just got Kevin fired. <laughs> uh, poor Kevin. Well, we learned a lot about about the uh, Allison Benedict family tank top rules today. Which I think is <laughs> valuable for all all listeners. Allison, it's yes. good to draw lines, Allison. It really is. Thank Random you so much. Sartorial lines. Um, everybody should listen to Allison's podcast. Mom and Dad are fighting. Mom and Dad are not More wearing tank tops. Tip, tips. <laughs> Thank you, Allison. Thanks, guys. This month, Jessica Mendoza became the first woman to call a nationally televised playoff game for ESPN. The former All-American and Olympic softball player was excellent, as she has been in the studio this season. Good Lord, far better than that right-wing right-hander, Kurt Schilling, who tweeted some nonsense about Hitler and ISIS and was suspended, paving the way for Mendoza to become an analyst during the playoffs of the Astros-Yankees game. For her efforts, Mendoza predictably was dumped with a Twitter stream of sexist vitriol, some just sexist, woman announcer, and some worse one, Atlanta sports radio blowhard named Mike Bell went all in. Yes, tell us, Tits McGee, when you're up there hitting the softball, you see a lot of 95-mile-an-hour cutters, which is funny because from 43 feet, pretty much... Top softball players do see 80, 90-mile-an-hour pitches. And then Bell did what any self-respecting sports talk host does. He doubled down. I've been trending for all the wrong reasons tonight. I apologize for calling Jessica Mendoza Tits McGee. Bell read a prepared on-air apology and was suspended indefinitely. Hemispan. <laughs> Jessica Mendoza, the Twitter vitriol. It is so common. Um, there have been a bunch of stories written both before and, and after um, what happened to Jessica Mendoza about what it's like to be a woman in sports on the internet on television Is this just sadly predictable too, like head injuries in football or does this say something worse about us? It is sadly predictable uh, I do think at the same time it is getting better in the sense that Jessica Mendoza is doing ESPN Sunday Night Baseball and doing it well and ESPN is announced to be back next year so in that sense you know progress is being made but so you know, a lot of people don't like it and are pushing back. You do see it all the time. Every you know, every woman I know in sports has dealt with their fair share of this. I mean, it's obviously worse if you're going to be on ESPN on you know prime time. When she was announced, you sort of you you knew this was going to happen. I knew it was going to happen. I'm sure she knew it was going to happen. There's always the issue. I think if you're on the receiving end of do you say anything? Do you draw more attention to it, or do you just keep your head down and, and do your job? She's been doing the latter. I mean, honestly, first of all, anyone who saves us from Kurt Schilling's commentary is going to be a personal hero to me, regardless of gender or <laughs> anything else. And it wasn't, you know, it's not a political thing for me. It's just his, his baseball analysis drives me insane. She's been very good. Kruk's been very good with her. Maybe more, maybe most impressive. She's made Kruk a lot more, a lot more pleasant. No, it's, it's, you know, one thing that was interesting with all the, you saw a lot of people spewing stuff at her on Twitter it usually started being just flat-out sexist, whether it was Tits McGee or tell this woman to shut up or blah, blah, blah. And then when people pushed them on it, they would quickly retreat to, oh, well, it's just she never played the game and a color commentator has to have played the game, as if this were, like, written into baseball's rules. Um, a lot of the best baseball announcers 
have you know never come anywhere as near to Major League Baseball as she has. You know, you know Vince Scully, man. I just I'm sick of Vince <laughs> Scully. He never played the game. And yeah. it's not too late. Then. Exactly. You know, um, get out there. John Miller, you know, plenty of there's, there's a million examples of of great baseball broadcasters who didn't play Major League Baseball. She's shown, I think, from her from the game she's called so far, she understands hitting, she understands pitching, she's very good on the technical stuff. And people never seem to criticize exact things she says. And I will say, it's fun. You don't have to like Jessica Mendoza. I mean, no broadcaster right. is beloved by every listener. But it's never the specific thing she says that people jump on. It's just, ah, get this woman to shut up. However, they are losing. She's doing games. She's going to be doing them again next year. So as depressing as it is, uh, you know, I, I think on the whole, her story is a positive one. Yeah, she seems good to me. It's one of those things where I was watching the game and then two innings in, I'm like, wait a minute, that's a woman. And then I did a little Googling. I'm like, this is the first time ever. I guess I'm conditioned for Doris Burke being fine right. and excellent on basketball games. So it would seem that uh, this, the first generation, are going to be the Jackie Robinsons of uh, female announcers and they're going to be excellent, right? I mean, this isn't uh, the era of uh, Chet Forty looking for the honey shots in the crowds. You want someone who could appeal to the growing female audience and also the male audience who just... A, has no problem with it, or B, maybe cheers a little bit because they're, uh, they have some feminist instincts, or C, doesn't even notice the gender of the announcer, but likes the fact that she's uh, talking about pitch sequence in an intelligible way. And I, w- I wonder, yeah. if, is there a difference, Mike, between the positions that women are, are gaining access to in sports? You know, John Heyman at CBS Sports reported this week that Kim Ang is in the running to become the general manager of the Philadelphia Phillies. She's been in baseballs with the Yankees for a long, long time. We have had uh, the appointments, obviously, Becky Hammond with the San Antonio Spurs. Nancy Lieberman was hired by the Sacramento Kings in basketball. Billy Bean's A's hired a female coach for the first time in baseball. And on Monday Night Football this week, uh, there was a, a female referee for the first time, part of a crew doing the Steelers-Chargers game. And... People like had like spasms because she made the correct call on the last second game winning touchdown. The NFL's head PR guy, Joe Brown, tweeted the news out. Steve Levy went on and on about it on ESPN afterward as Trent Dilfer and Steve Young nodded sagely. Uh, USA Today football writer Lindsey Jones tweeted, can we stop acting so shocked that the female official made the correct call on the touchdown? Well, let's let's put aside the uh, stupidity of troglodytes. Um, Mike Bell, who the hell is this guy? Right. He's got right. to frame it as some idiot says something about Jessica Mendoza. The question is, you know, what are the what are the real avenues for women to have these positions that have nothing to do with, um, you know, being a man or a woman in physical ability. And it would seem to me that announcer should, there should be a floodgate. There are just mm-hmm. as many women as men who want to go into sports broadcasting. And but for the, you know, sorting mechanism of former players getting a leg up in terms of being color commentators. And I understand that. And there is a logic to it, although you could have a broad array of color commentators and there should be some stats guys and there should be some player guys and there should be some just small smart guys and smart women. Fine. How is a woman going to ever get a real coaching job? I mean, the Arizona Cardinals hired their first coach and that was a big splash. And she was an intern coach for middle linebackers in summer football in the uh, preseason. Okay. So it's good that it happened, but I can't see in 10 years, where's the avenue given the culture of football, the biggest sport in America where women really break in. Same with baseball. Women don't 
play baseball in this country. They play softball, and it's similar, and it's perfectly appropriate for a color commentator, but baseball is different from softball, and we don't allow our girls to play baseball. We make them play softball. But with basketball, there should be women coaches, assistant coaches in five years, head coaches in 10 years. Stupid that colleges, first of all, there are 300. Second of all, they're supposed to be more progressive. Third of all, they're supposed to care less about making money than a pro team. So it should be the college levels that are full of female coaches everywhere. And that's just a culture thing. I think it's going to change, but it's really disappointing that it hasn't changed a lot already. I agree. You'll see it in basketball. And I think it'll I think actually the male players have less of an issue with it than a lot of fans because if you you know yeah. athletes they respect Especially someone who can do it. They're progressive most. Yeah, but also yeah. you know, you see that the woman can play and that's it for a lot of these guys. I mean, mm-hmm. I think basketball's been pretty supportive of this, and mm-hmm. I do think you'll see a lot more of it there. And, and in terms of the internet, I mean, I, don't, I think that the only way that this mitigates over time is that there are more Jessica Mendozas and the troglodytes like this radio host and the the, the anonymous Twitterers just start to go away. And in the meantime, you know, it's sort of the duty of smart media members and of organizations like ESPN to promote people that are qualified and that they're going to give an audience, you know, quality analysis. And ESPN clearly has done that here with Jessica Mendoza, and I expect them to keep doing it. They've done it with Doris Burke, and I I expect we're going to see more qualified women calling games for sports that uh, they may not necessarily have have played at the highest level, though Jessica Mendoza arguably has. I mean, I think, you know, put some put any of those guys in the booth up against uh, up against a softball pitch from uh, an Olympian, and it'd be very difficult for them to hit it. Yeah, I'm a little more pessimistic than you in that I don't think that you know this kind of Twitter vitriol is going away in our lifetimes. But I think what does happen is that you know progress goes on without it, and unfortunately, it's part right. of the job if you're woman in sports, but, you know, but ultimately they only have as much power as, as society give them. And I think that kind of power is diminishing. Uh, we talked about the Padres, little discussed hang up and listen team. I was also thinking the Diamondbacks, we're maybe a little discussed. It's all the National League West teams, save Dodgers and Giants. Are there any teams that you guys feel like we have been giving not enough attention to? Those were the ones that came to mind for me. Hmm. I was also you thinking know, maybe the Pelicans, but then we talked about the Pelicans' nickname. That I don't time. think how much we I, we discussed the wisdom of giving Joe Maurer a contract, but we haven't done much Twins talk. Twins talk. Change the name of the podcast to Twins talk. Right. And the Royals, we discussed. Uh, their GM go for broke strategy. Yeah, I guess we usually don't. People and people often write in and say, "How could you not discuss this? How could you not discuss that?" Or and it's usually actually it's usually when I'm on NPR and it'll be like, "How could you not discuss the Indians? They're doing so well." But a team doing well, I mean, teams are always in top of the standings, and unless it's interesting, teams it, do well every year. That's kind yeah, of a, one, that's kind of the dog bites man story of sports, <laughs> right? So, like when we talk about the Nationals, we're not talking about that they did well that year. We're talking about the controversy about sitting. Uh, um, Steven, Steven Strasburg. I think we need to take the metric further. There's got to be some geographical bias here. We are guilty. Well, charged. yeah, people often accuse us of, talk about the of having we've West Coast bias. We've never talked bias. about the Wizards. We did a whole podcast about the Nationals, Yeah, but basically. we've never, we never talked, when we were in D.C., what have we ever done about the Wizards? We had a, someone playing the accordion 
about the Nationals. What right. have we ever done about the Wizards? We talked about the Wizards a lot during the playoffs. So I defended right. the Wizards. The charge, the charge of West Coast bias, though, Mike, do you think that there is any uh, legitimacy Rangers. to that for our podcast or also what you covered on NPR? Uh, Sorry. Yeah, I mean, if East Coast bias. Yeah. Not West well, Coast coastal bias. bias. Yeah. Definitely not Edmonton bias. No, pra- We hate the prairie here. Well, we talk about the thunder a lot. Yeah, I mean, of course. It's like the things that occur to you. And the other thing to think about is that, um, you know, ESPN definitely does put the Red Sox and the Yankees on a lot more often. Guess what? They want ratings. And then there's another argument to be had, which is, all right, let's talk about one aspect of what we do is talking about the things that are interesting to people. I mean, if I was covering, if we were covering a situation, you know, like the world's wars, then you could say, hey, you're covering this hot spot at the exclusion of Sudan and Sudan is so much, you know, m- there's a bigger atrocity and it's undercovered and that's legitimate. But when you make the argument with the, you know, the pirates instead of the Rangers, there is an element to, well, let's talk about the things that people are interested in. And if it's a team with, you know, many fewer fans, I don't know, it is perhaps less interesting to people. Although I kind of love that. And I'm always going to talk about the Houston Astros and, uh, and the Rays. The, the whole point of why we talk about the Rays so much is they seem to have very few fans. Indeed. We hope you enjoyed those Slate Plus bonus segments. If you want to hear more segments like these, sign up for Slate Plus. You'll receive ad-free versions of all of Slate's podcasts, have access to bonus segments on Hang Up and Listen and other shows, A membership is just $5 a month or $50 a year. Try it for a few weeks before you buy. Just go to slate.com slash hangup plus. We'd love your feedback on what we talked about today or what we talked about other days in the past. Uh, You can email us at hangup at slate.com. We'll also gather links to the stories we discussed at slate.com slash hangup. Subscribe to Hang Up and Listen on iTunes. You can find us at itunes.com slash slate podcasts. When you're there, leave us a comment and a rating. Become a fan of Hang Up and Listen on Facebook at facebook.com slash hangupandlisten. Our producer is Zach Dinerstein, and the executive producer of Slate's podcast is Andy Bowers. Hang Up and Listen is part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster of podcasts at itunes.com slash panoply. Remember Zelmo Beatty, and thanks for listening. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club! Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.